Okay, Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him, but bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. The resurrection of Jesus Christ really is the greatest moment of history. If we're looking just at the pure doctrine of the resurrection, then the resurrection ratified the crucifixion. So what happened at the crucifixion is Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement so that if any of us recognize that we are sinners Uh, We confess our sins, we put our trust in Jesus Christ, and he died in our place. And so what happened at the resurrection was sort of like God the Father saying, yes, I accept as a substitutionary atonement, I accept what happened there at the crucifixion. And so it's a ratification of the crucifixion. Resurrection also conquered death. It's this eternal life that burst out of the grave, this new eternal life. And it is given to all believers for free and not just eternal life, but also the power behind it, which gives us the power then to overcome sin. It gives us uh, the power to persevere in the Christian life. So the crucifixion is crucial to the theology of salvation, but there's more to the crucifixion, I think. It also fits a pattern of something that God tends to do, something that God is famous for, bringing life out of death. And bringing order out of chaos. So imagine, for example, the cosmos before God said, let there be light. We're told that it was formless and void. It was this vast, dangerous, smashing and exploding. And then all of a sudden, God came into it and made something habitable and even beautiful for Adam and Eve. And these creation themes we also saw in Exodus when we went through the book of Exodus there last year. God was 
undoing his creation there during the ten plagues and then recreating this good land and this good law where his people could live. And it happens again at the resurrection. There is no worse disorder than death, a broken body. It's a physical, formless, and void where life was supposed to be. But God reached into the empty tomb and he put it back together. And he put it back together better than what had been. Jesus came out of the empty tomb with a body that no grave would ever hold again. And God does stuff like that. He is not overwhelmed or confused by disaster or tragedy or trauma. He wastes nothing. He uses all of it, arranging it into some kind of beautiful thing and infusing it with life so that we can glorify and enjoy him forever. Now, our passage this morning is Philippians 2, and it's about relationships. We've all faced moments in close relationships that get so bad that you wonder if it can be put back together again. Or somebody was so hurtful that you wonder if you will ever have joy again. But the Christian knows that God does not waste any of that. Not one moment of it. Every molecule and every moment will be organized into something beautiful. And it will be infused with light for our good and for God's glory. Because that's the kind of thing that God does. The question is, what does God say about what relationships are supposed to be like? And we need to know this. Because if we follow his ways, we can carve out these little Edens, these little safe places in a world of broken relationships. And we need to know this because when relationships don't resemble God's design, and often they do not, when they don't resemble God's design, which we only know by reading about God's design, then we can rely on him to gather our hearts with peace and with joy so that we can keep loving him and keep loving other people. So it's important for us to know what God says about, that, about the design, about how we're supposed to have relationships with each other. So we're going to be looking this morning at Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to begin at verse 5 and go through 11. And uh, we'll go through it verse by verse or phrase by phrase, making sure that we understand the words on the page. And then I'd like to draw, draw out a few implications. So beginning here with verse 5, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves. That's Paul's way of saying, think about this. Think about stuff this way. Uh, have this mindset. And this is important because relationships can easily knock us off our theology. We can forget things that we know about God and about how God has designed us and about how God has designed the church and how God has designed family. We can forget about God's promises and God's goodness and promising to be with us. We can forget about the crucifixion, forget about the resurrection. We can forget about these things when relationships go haywire. And so it's important for us to think in a certain way. We have to preach to ourselves. Uh, when our peace is disturbed, Paul says, set your mind on this. Concentrate on this. Make yourself think about this. And what does he say we need to think about this? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, how does Jesus think about relationships? When Jesus is in a relationship, how does he think? Think that way. You can, you, and you can do that because Christ is in you. And we have a testimony of how Christ thinks about relationships in uh, the four Gospels. So think like Jesus, have the attitude of Jesus, approach relationships 
in the same way that Jesus approaches relationships. And the passage goes on, says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what does this mean? Though he was in the form of God, that word form has to do with external appearance. And that's important. If you're taking notes, you might want to Just circle that word in your Bible, that word form, and in the margin just put, this has to do with external appearance, external appearance. Jesus is the Son of God. And if you looked at the Son before the incarnation, before he became a baby in Mary's womb, if you were to look at the Son before that, you would see glory. And that changed at the incarnation when the Holy Spirit put the Son of God into Mary's womb. So we see here, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being made in human likeness. This has to do with the Son of God, who if you were to see him before the incarnation, you would see glory. Now, all of a sudden, you see a baby. He changed his form. He was in the form of God. The Son looked like God prior to The incarnation, but at the incarnation, the form changed. He didn't stop being God. He didn't stop having divine attributes. But as a baby, he looked like a baby. He just looked like a human. He didn't stop being God, but he stopped looking like God. And why did he do that? Because, verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped is important. And it usually in Greek has a negative connotation. Kind of like taking or even robbing. Violent seizure, one of the dictionaries said. Violent seizure. It's kind of a gimme that. So what we're being told here is that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be kind of like gimme that. I'm God. Jesus didn't do that with his divinity. He was God. He never stopped being God. But when he became a man, he didn't grab on to his divinity in order to appear more glorious. He didn't claim rights of worship, which he had every right to. But he didn't say, give me worship. You owe me worship. He didn't do that. He wasn't demanding. He was humble. And the text says, but emptied himself. So he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's important that we understand what this means that he emptied himself because there's been debate on this and several weird heresies have come out of just that one word, emptied. What does that mean that he emptied himself? People make the mistake of thinking that Jesus gave up his divine attributes, but he did not, he could not. You can't stop being God. You can't stop sustaining the universe. But as a man, Jesus had two natures, the only being that has ever had two natures. He's one person with two natures. In his human nature, he was a baby, getting his diaper changed and all that other kind of stuff. As a human being, he was walking, talking, speaking. But in his divinity, he continued to sustain the universe, continued to be God. So he didn't stop being God. But as a man, Jesus served Instead of getting worship, he blessed. And that's what it means that he emptied himself. There was no prestige. There was no position. He became a servant. And servants experience what one commentator called an extreme deprivation of rights. That's that's probably an understatement. 
that a, that a servant or a slave experiences an extreme deprivation of rights. And that's what it means that Jesus emptied himself. He was still omnipotent, still omnipresent in his divine nature, still omniscient. But he appeared to be a simple human. And instead of ruling the world, which he deserved, instead of ruling the world, he served. And he did that, we see there, continuing in verse 7, by being made in human likeness. Now, that is amazing. That's a shocking thing. Second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one who said, let there be light. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. And yet, surprise, he came as a baby to a poor family being made in human likeness, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Of all the people in the universe who deserved to be served, it was Jesus. He is the creator, but instead of demanding service and worship, he served. It's incredible. That's amazing. Of all the people who could have demanded obedience, it was Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings, but instead he served. Interpersonal trouble between us, between each other, in our families, in our church family, whatever it may be, interpersonal trouble comes from disunity, which is Paul's theme here, talking about unity all through this section. Interpersonal trouble comes from disunity that is caused by claiming or grasping for my rights. Think about me. What about my desires, my respect? Some bosses get defensive when people threaten their position. Some dads can't handle a child or a wife questioning them or suggesting different ideas. You know what? I'm the father. I will be obeyed. This is how I want it. If you question me, then that's disrespect. And you're going to feel shame being around me. And Jesus isn't like, isn't like that at all. Jesus emptied himself he didn't demand what was owed he didn't have to control how to cook the fish he was just happy to sit down and eat it with people that he cared about so it's interesting that the sovereign creator and sustainer of all creation isn't controlling think about that for a second the sovereign creator and sustainer of all creation isn't controlling it's also amazing to me that Jesus in his church divests his authority through a wildly weird group of people like me and Pastor Mike to represent him and explain his ideas and arrange what the church likes, what the church looks like from one place to another. I think it was Erwin Lutzer who told me when I was in seminary that the first 300 sermons of a young pastor are pretty much worthless. <laughs> Because it takes a long time to figure, figure out how to do it. I mean, how many times do you think Jesus is up there watching me preach for my first few years here at Cornerstone, thinking, oh, for crying out loud, that's not how to explain that. Get out, move for a second. Let me just say that. Okay, now you go back. He never did that. It's incredible how he divests his authority through a bunch of odd people. He's patient like that. One of my favorite movies is Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. 
I have a poster in my office because I thought that it would generate conversation, but in all the years I've had it, nobody has asked me a single question, so I'm just going to talk about it. Since you've asked... It's one of my favorite movies. It's not a particularly enjoyable movie to watch because it's a tragedy, and tragedies are like that. But it's about a man who falls in love with a woman, and he shouldn't fall in love with her because she's married. So right off the bat, we have some problems with what Scotty wants. But then she dies, and Scotty finds another woman that looks a lot like the first one, and it's a little bit like an addiction. He can't help himself from molding her into that first woman. He changes her hair, he changes her wardrobe, makes her eat at his favorite restaurants. Supposedly he's in love with her, but he's honestly not caring at all about the real person that's in front of him. It's an uncomfortable movie to watch. Gene Siskel said it was an unpleasant experience, he said. (laughs) And again, that's because it's a tragedy. You keep cringing while Scotty makes these terrible choices. But most critics would call it one of the greatest movies ever made, and that's partly because there was so much talent involved. But mostly, if a movie counts as art, say it goes beyond just being a movie to being film, you need more than just talent involved. Roger Ebert said, entertainment is about the way things should be, but art is about the way they are. And that's true about film. It's true about great books, too. Many of us like to read Great books together. Leland Riken, literature prophet. Uh, Wheaton said, History and the daily news tell us what happened. Literature tells us what happens. Well, Vertigo is a great film because it shows us what happens. It's an exaggerated reflection of what we do. We want people to be a certain way. And we do questionable things in order to make them change so that they will be the way that we want them to be. It's a weird warping of the Imago Dei. God made us in his image. We've been made in the image of God. But at the fall, we became these little brat gods that try to make people in our image. I want to make you like I want you. I'll be more happy if you would stop doing this. So I'm going to use all kinds of creative ways. Maybe I'm a tantrum thrower, or maybe I'm real passive, or maybe I have all kinds of ways of manipulating you so that over the years, man, I'm going to get you to change. So that I will be more happy. You know, as a leader, there's a problem if you can only see two models. One model being the Scotty model from Vertigo, molding people to make them into what we want them to be, which creates shame, creates indignity. Or let's say the egalitarian model where nobody leads, which means that the person with the loudest voice leads, which is usually the least qualified one. If those are the only two models that you can see, then you have missed the model of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, emptied himself and humbled himself. What would you do with omnipotence? What would I do if I was all glorious? What if I were just the most popular person in my town? Well, here's what God would do with all of that. Here's what God would do with omnipotence and all glory. He would manifest himself on earth in such a way that nobody knew that he was anything special. And he would use that time in order to take care of people to the point of sometimes extreme exhaustion 
and even death. That's what Jesus would do with omnipotence and all glory. And that's because it is a godly thing to do. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I mean, that one's like, come on. That's like the best of Paul there. I'm sorry, but let's just try that again. I know we're not mostly black, but let's just try for a second here because that deserves. Okay. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. Mm. So Paul here is at the end of a major section about unity, even though he'll pick up that theme as he continues. But this is the end of basically what is known as a hymn. Probably people sang it. He may be quoting it. He may not have written it. We don't know. But it's a hymn here that he's ending with. And it's about unity. Paul wants people in Philippi to get along with each other and to work well together in ministry. That's what he wants. Interpersonal trouble comes when we grasp for our rights. Do it my way. Respect me. Listen to me. And Christ shows us a totally different way. Christ shows us how to let go of being viewed as the one that's most important here. Jesus actually was more important. But if we're going to be like him, we've got to, we see this in verse 3 of chapter 2. Pastor Mike preached this couple of weeks ago do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves Woo! that's a good one for the fridge or the bedroom wall in humility count others more significant than yourselves that'd be a good life verse Christ shows us how to let go of being viewed as the most important one. I have the rights here. I ought to be listened to here. Christ shows us how to let go of that. He also shows us how to let go of getting what I want and being in control, which is hard because if I'm not in control, there's a huge amount of risk. Huge amount of risk. (laughs) Jesus shows us how to let go. Of being in control. He did not grasp at his position or prestige for his own advantage. He went incognito so that he could serve and save. So he shows us, instead of those things, how to be meek. And that word meek is so important in the Bible. It's kind of like humility, except more. <laughs> To be meek, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You hear the irony there? Blessed are the meek, the people that count themselves as nobodies so that they can just serve and bless. Because guess what? Those are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. Ephesians chapter 4 says, walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So be meek. Jesus shows us how to be meek. Jesus also shows us how to be empathetic, how to think about other people. If we're going to bless people, we have to pay attention. When I was young, I used to buy Christmas presents for my dad that I thought he ought to like. You ever done this? Maybe you still do this or maybe you used to do this. As you get older, you realize that there's a couple of things that need to happen. First of all, instead of buying things for people that they ought to like, you ought to get into their head and think about what's actually going to bring a smile on this person's face. The other thing you do is you include a gift receipt, <laughs> right? Because I'm, I'm humble. I don't know if you're going to like this. So I'm not getting stuff that I think he should like. I'm trying to be a better son now and trying to get into his mind and buy things that just put a smile on his face. I'm not trying to fix him with my Christmas gifts. Be empathetic. This is also important for diffusing tension between people. A person can feel like an enemy or an idiot until we get in their heads and we think, I wonder how they're thinking about this, you know? You know, maybe she's in a bad mood today because she didn't sleep last night and it was a rough day at work yesterday. Let's cut her some slack. We don't need to parse every word that she just said and say that it hurt my feelings. Let's let it go. Let's just figure out how to bless this poor lady today. Get in her head. Be meek, be empathetic, and finally be missional. And that really is the point of all of this. And we see that in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, where this whole theme is getting started, Paul says he wants to see people standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, the purpose of unity is not just so that we can make it through potlucks without throwing food at each other, but the purpose of unity is so that people understand the gospel and repent for their sins and come into the church and start explaining the gospel and being discipled and discipling other people. That's the point of unity. It's a strong unifier ministry together. I think a lot of marriage problems probably come from the absence of mission. Not just going to church and, oh, let's make sure that we go to church. But I mean, like, really sitting down and saying, all right, what are your spiritual gifts? What are my spiritual gifts? How can we use them together in order to strengthen the church? How can we make sure that more evangelism and more discipleship happens because you and I are working together? Let's throw our energy there. And it gives us something to focus on. Ministry work is an important way to unify a church family. And these three things make us like Christ. Be meek, be empathetic, be missional. If we will do this, then we will carve out these little Edens, little places of beauty protected from the formless and void outside, places where people can thrive and laugh because we are there without fear, without pressure, without shame. A husband does this for his new little wife in their first small apartment, creating this safe and beautiful place where she can flower into the full dignity and the full power and value that God created her to have. A mother does this for her children, 
cleaning up skinned knees, watching for cars and other people's dogs and all the other protections and provisions that make sweet dreams possible, that, that deep sleep possible. Jesus Christ shows us a tender strength. He combines humility of the incarnation and the suffering of the cross and the power of the empty tomb. And he combines that all together for the sake of saving people from death. For the purpose of us glorifying and enjoying him and rejoicing in his presence forever and ever. Sweet fellowship, happy homes, effective church growth. That that kind of stuff happens because God has the power to take chaos and darkness And work it into something beautiful for people who trust him. There are thousands of small hard choices that have to be made along the way. It is not pleasant to empty oneself. Servants are unpopular, forgotten, obscure people. There are thousands of hurts that make good relationships hard. Millions of mistakes and sins that could derail this whole plan of God. And yet, God is able to take a dead body and bring it back to life. God is able to use a pierced heart to save humanity from eternal conscious punishment in hell. God is able to rip a slave race out of Egypt and conquer Canaanite kingdoms in order to make a good place for his people flowing with milk and honey. God does stuff like that. Are we going to trust him to do it again and again in this heartbreak and again in this trauma? Do we trust that he can take this shrapnel and build it into something better than what blew up? Are we willing to step into the risk by his power to bless undeserving people for the glory of God? I'd like to close with a poem by John Updike here about the resurrection. This is called Seven Stanzas at Easter by John Updike. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit and the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not a paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel. Weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Let's close in prayer.